Many of you will be aware that um, last year and the year before I led uh, a pilgrimage from this church to the Holy Land, to, uh, to Israel and the Palestinian territories. And if you've read the, the blogs from the trip, and I think one of the blogs is still on our brand spanking new website, plug, um, then uh, you'll, know it's, uh, you'll know it's a real joy uh, to lead a pilgrimage, and I found it a huge privilege. It's amazing uh, to visit the places where Jesus uh, ministered, both in the rural north, around the Sea of Galilee, but also amidst the hustle and the bustle, and, and yes, the tension also uh, of Jerusalem. And you get a real uh, sense of what it would have been like at the time of Jesus and, and I guess the Bible comes alive and the, the Bible accounts seem kind of earthier and truer uh, than perhaps you've ever realised before. But there's one snag about visiting the Holy Land, and that's this. After a few days visiting various sites associated with the ministry of Jesus, one is forced to the conclusion that no holy site is complete without a whacking great church being built on top of it. Let me give you an example. So there's the, 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 by Capernaum, which is the north of the Sea of Galilee, we've discovered the first century remains of the sea, of the, uh, the city where Jesus lived, the town where Jesus lived, including a house which we think could have belonged to the Apostle Peter and therefore was stayed in by Jesus. An incredible scene, only slightly spoiled by a spaceship-style church built right on top of this house. Uh, and it slightly spoils the plot. Or, or to use another example, Jerusalem, you have the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the, 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 the garden on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, uh, and you go in and there's a beautiful kind of uh, dozen or so olive trees dating back a thousand years, and actually their roots are dating back 2,000 years to the time of Jesus. And you've got a little bit of a sense of what the Garden of Gethsemane would have been like. You get a much better sense if a hundred of those trees hadn't been knocked down to make a whacking great church right next to it. <laughs> Uh, and sort of, you kind of think, hang on, um, does it have to be, uh, uh, in order to be a holy site, you almost think that it can't be a real holy site without a church building being built there. I mean, I think that's why I prefer the Sea of Galilee most of all, because although Jesus did lots of miracles on the Sea of Galilee, nobody's built a floating church. At least not yet. But it, but it but it's kind of makes the point that as human beings, we're kind of fascinated by religious buildings. And we kind of associate them with the presence of God. If you, if you want to understand any ancient or modern culture, you'll understand much of their faith and their sort of life by looking at their religious buildings, whether that's an Aztec or a Roman temple or a mosque or a synagogue or a church. Uh, they are kind of markers of faith and often associated with the presence of God. That God is somehow, somehow uniquely in a building in a way that he isn't in the olive trees themselves. Now, if you understand the building, you'll actually, sometimes that takes a bit of expert knowledge, you actually understand what's going on in the faith that calls that building to be built. So religious buildings kind of are significant and are going to be a bit of our theme today, because today we're looking at the first religious building ever described in the Bible. That is, if you exclude Noah's Ark. Um, because it's called the tabernacle and it was constructed at the time of Moses, just over 3,000 years ago. Now, in many ways, it was a very, very strange building, unlike any religious building today. But I'm going to suggest that by looking at it carefully, we're going to understand what was driving the faith back then, and how did that sort of expression of faith point forward 
to Jesus Christ. Because I'm going to say, although there's a huge amount of detail over four chapters of Exodus, and we didn't read it all today, uh, actually, if we go beyond that detail, we're going to find ourselves looking actually at what the Christian faith is all about. Um, if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope that's a really encouraging reminder of quite what the good news of Christian faith is. If you're here this morning and you're seeking faith, you're trying to understand what faith is all about, I hope there's something here that actually makes you want to explore more, because there's good news for us all. Should we just describe the context, particularly if you're here for the first time this morning? Um, we're spending this term looking at the second half of the book of Exodus, which is the book of Exodus is the story of God's people's escape from Pharaoh in Egypt uh, through to the Promised Land. And we picked up the story back in September as the people of God were sort of just escaped through the Red Sea, uh, through the miraculous act of God. And we've been following them on their journey through the desert. And we've seen God providing for his people. We've seen God speak to his people at Mount Sinai as as kind of uh, Moses received the law and especially the Ten Commandments. But over the last two weeks, we've seen a major reversal in the the kind of story of God's people because they got so uh, frustrated and so impatient that Moses hadn't come down the mountain. Aaron got everyone to uh, burn their earrings and stuff like that and they made a golden calf and they worshipped it and God was righteously angry and that was looked very, very bleak for God's people. But last week we saw uh, that actually God kind of uh, gave them a second chance and that Moses got a second set of uh, stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. But nevertheless... There's still quite an uneasy tone going on. God's people are still kind of feeling their way back into a relationship with the God they know they've wronged. And I guess the construction of the tabernacle that takes four chapters almost at the end of the book of Exodus is kind of part of their way back with God. Because God had actually given the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle before the golden calf incident. It's there twice in Exodus, if you look carefully. Um, But now they're actually building it. Now they're doing as they're told. And it says in the construction they were doing it willingly and they offered, as we heard in our readings, their gifts, their talents and their kind of materials for the tabernacle to be built. And so the tabernacle was built exactly as God commanded. You can uh, get a little bit of a picture if you sort of look on your uh, uh, pink sermon handout. Don't worry if you can't read the writing. It's not your eyes have gone funny. It ha- it's come out a bit blurry. Okay, I think it's a dreadful. Need glasses, but you can't read it even with glasses. Um, uh, so, so what it would have been, there was the kind of the tabernacle, which was the tent. That's the bit in the middle. Uh, and that would have been roughly the size of this church. Okay. And then the whole complex, which is that larger bit, that would have been roughly the size of a football pitch, surrounded uh, by a curtain uh, on all sides. And, I mean, the, the tabernacle tent itself would have glistened with fine material and jewels. It would have been a joy to behold uh, when it was finished. But I guess the question is, what was the purpose of it all? Why was it built? Why did God tell the Israelites to make this? Well, I think the tabernacle was there to facilitate three things. Uh, You can see them on the reverse of the sermon handout. I'm suggesting the tabernacle was there to facilitate God being among his people, God being separate from his people, and God being on the move with his people. We're going to look at the first two briefly and then track forward to today, and then we're going to go back to the third and have a look at what that speaks to us. 
So the first thing to notice about the tabernacle is that it facilitated God being among his people. So the centre of the whole complex was the tabernacle tent. This is what the tent would have looked like. Um, And at the far end of it, the left as you look at it, is a holy, what was known as the most holy place. It was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain. And um, at, at the heart of that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a wooden box overlaid with gold, uh, in which were kept the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And on top of that box were the two cherubim, angelic creatures, facing one another. Uh, Okay, so that's that's the right at the heart of the tabernacle. And this is what God promised about this ark. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim, that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you, and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And that's expanded a few chapters later on in Exodus 29, 45. Then, when this is finished, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am their Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell with them. Do you see what's going on? The tabernacle is the means by which God is going to live, dwell with his people. You see, previously he saved his people through the Red Sea. He's spoken to his people on the mountain. Now he's going to live with them in that most holy place on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, not physically present, but spiritually real. God has a home, and it's in that tabernacle. The tabernacle is the physical manifestation of God living with his people. That's what it's there to facilitate. Not visiting, but staying and living. But the second thing that the tabernacle was to facilitate was God being separate from his people. Because, you see, alongside the centrality of the ark, the second thing to notice about the tabernacle are all the kind of barriers that are built into it. There's the curtain between the most holy place and the rest of the tabernacle. There's the curtain surrounding the tabernacle. And then there's the uh, basin uh, where people had to wash their hands. There's the altar where people had to offer sacrifices. There's the curtain around the whole complex itself. It's always kind of a, a series of barriers to be crossed or kind of doors that have to be gone through, some of which could only be gone through by priests. The message was that where God lived couldn't be approached casually. You couldn't just kind of bump up alongside him. Now, what's going on there? Underlying all this was the reality that a sinful people needed to be kept separate from a holy God. Yeah, God's holiness, if he was present among his people, was so pure that it could not be tainted by sin without those people who were sinful being consumed. I mean, think of a kind of comet. Comets have been in the news recently. One of the reasons why comets disappear is they just get too close to the sun. When a comet gets just too close to the sun, it's kind of chugging along, chugging along, and it just gets consumed, gets burnt up by the power of the sun. And that's what God's holiness does to sin. It kind of burns it up. It's so pure, it cannot abide it. And so in order for a sinful people to kind of come and be with God, their sin had to be dealt with. That's why there was a, an altar where the animals were sacrificed and the sin of the people was laid on the animals and they were killed and the sin was dealt with. But the tabernacle complex was a huge reminder that there was a problem between a holy God and a people who had strayed not just once, but would do so again and again. So the tabernacle, you see, was about two things. Yes, it was about God dwelling with his people, 
not just visiting them, but staying with them. But it was also about God being separate from his people, so that before a holy God, their sin could be dealt with. And that's what the barriers were about. Helping people recognize their sin, deal with their sin, so that they or people on their behalf could come into God's presence. So there was a God among his people and a God separate from his people. That's the story of the tabernacle. It was a story, though, which continued uh, with when the people of God reached the promised land. Thank you, Kim. Because there, over time, the curtains of the temple were replaced with... The curtains of the tabernacle were replaced with the stones of the temple. The t- tabernacle was fell out of use, but a temple was built. But the principles were saying there was still a holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. There was still uh, a sanctuary through which only priests could go. There were still courts where sacrifices were offered, all this sense of barriers and distancing. And although the temple built by King Solomon was destroyed in 587 BC and the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed forever, unless you believe Indiana Jones, the rebuilt temple still had the same structure and purpose even up to the time of Jesus. It was the place where God was believed to dwell among his people and yet he was also separate from his people. Okay, do you get, do you get what's going on? There's a tabernacle, the same principles of the tabernacle applied to the temple. All of that is a really long preamble to give you the background against which Jesus' actions and words about the temple need to be taken into account. Because we heard that s- small excerpt from Mark's Gospel narrating how Jesus turned over the temple tables in the temple court. It's a pretty well-known scene. But if we see that episode as kind of Jesus losing the plot about some kind of economic injustice going on, we are missing the point. Because taken with the words around it and Jesus' other words about the temple, we see that this act has a much deeper meaning. Jesus' act in the temple that day was a prophetic act. He wasn't just overturning the tables. He was overturning the temple itself. He was saying... As a temple, its days were numbered. Why? Well, because the two things that the temple stood for were now obsolete because of Jesus. The two things that the tabernacle was about and the temple were about, they were all gone because of Jesus. Why? Well, there was no need for a building for God to dwell in when God himself was walking the earth in the shape of Jesus Christ himself. You didn't need a building for God when God himself was made flesh and was a man among them. And you didn't need a place for sacrifices for sin when a few short days later, that man who was speaking to them would give his life on the cross as God's sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And no sacrifice was needed after that. The temple was obsolete. The tabernacle, its days were over. That's why the early church did not put any stress on being at the temple to worship. It didn't take part in the sacrifices offered there. Because Jesus was enough. He was God dwelling with his people. He was the sacrifice to bring sinful people close to a holy God. Now it's true that over the time that has passed, the church has forgotten some of these lessons. I've been in churches Uh, all over the world, which have kind of reinstated barriers. 
You, you know, where only priests can go or only people can do certain things. I've seen churches which have almost sought to recreate the space between the cherubim and show kind of God is here in a way that he isn't elsewhere. And I can see some uh, lessons behind this, but I think the real heart of Christian faith is being missed. Because the heart of Christian faith is that God came among his people, not in a building, but in his son Jesus Christ. And God did not want people to stay separate from him behind barriers, but to draw close through Jesus Christ. You see, the tabernacle was a building of its time, but it was not the whole story. It was the thing that pointed to the main story, which was Jesus Christ. Now, if that's true, if the tabernacle's days are over and they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, let me give us two applications for us today. First, Jesus is our evidence that God is among us. Jesus is our evidence that God is among us. We rightly ask where God is in our world. Following on from Remembrance Sunday, I've been watching the groundbreaking series The World at War, first shown in 1973. It's a gripping but harrowing account of World War II. It's forced me to ask, just as the news every day forces us to ask, where is God? Is he among his people? And then I recall that God did not stay distant from the world but entered it, not in a building, but as a vulnerable baby, and in due course suffered an unspeakable death, the eternal God with life snuffed out. That does not answer all the questions, but is the evidence we need that God has touched human life, every human life because he became flesh. Second, we do not need to keep distant from God today. We do not need to keep distant from God today. Yes, God is still an awesome, majestic, holy God. And yes, you and I are still sinful people. That much hasn't changed. But God has made a way for us to draw near to him. That way is not the sacrifice of an animal on an altar, but of a man on a cross, Jesus Christ. Whatever we have done, we do not need to live in guilt and shame. As we come saying sorry in our hearts and with our lives, claiming the forgiveness offered us in Jesus Christ, we find God welcoming us in because we have Jesus' name on us and his arms outstretched. I I wonder if being distant from the Lord is actually something that describes you today, perhaps not physically, but actually spiritually. I remember where I was... I used to worship when I was at university, was a very old church, and it had two enormous pillars by the back. And Sunday by Sunday, we used to find a few people who always used to sit behind those pillars. And as I kind of came to get to know them, I realized they they wanted to be kind of in touch with God, but they, they felt they needed to remain distant from him. They kind of 
didn't want God or other people to notice them. They thought that if he didn't notice them, he wouldn't notice their sin. And perhaps they could just stay in kind of touch with him, but, but nothing more. But, but we don't need to stay distant from God. He doesn't want us to do that. The days of the tabernacle where there are barriers to God are over. Jesus Christ has made a way for each of us to come to him, not because we're very, very good, but because he is very, very gracious. We do not need to stay distant from a loving God. God with us in Jesus. He has made his visit and dwelt among us. And God draws us close with Jesus. But there's one final thing I want us to notice about the tabernacle. And that's this. It was portable. It was portable. Doesn't sound very portable if it's the size of a church. But if you look at the description and uh, do read it uh, when you get home, Exodus 35 to 38, it's particularly good in the middle of the night. Um, But um, it's written in such a way that the whole building could be easily dismantled and taken from one place to the next. There are no solid walls in the whole complex, only curtains and poles. It's like one big sort of scout exercise. And, um, uh, uh, and the ark and the altar all had rings on the side so that they could be carried by poles. Uh, uh, it would have been a huge undertaking to pack it all up, but it was good to be done, and it was designed to be done. And all of this meant, you see, that God could go on a journey with his people. Because that is what they had ahead of them. They, they had a journey. They were on Mount Sinai. They needed to get to the Promised Land. And the portable tabernacle gave them the assurance that wherever they went, God would go with them. In other words, unlike the other gods of the day who were understood to be geographically restricted to one place, the Lord, Yahweh, would go with his people wherever they travelled. Now that sense of a kind of portable God actually stopped when it came to the promised land and the temple was built. Afterwards, it was a lot more static then. God was uniquely present, you see, among the stones of the temple. And so he was there, present in a way that he wasn't elsewhere. And therefore, the people of God, if they wanted to worship, they had to go to the temple. That's where God was. Do you know, in the first, time, in the first century, at the time of Jesus, synagogues weren't used for worship. They used for teaching and fellowship. They weren't used for worship. If you wanted to worship, you had to go to Jerusalem. Because that's where God was. And so in judging the temple as Jesus did that day, he was judging that worldview too. Because a few days later, he promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit, he said, to be with them forever. And as they journeyed throughout the known world, as Jesus knew they would and indeed called them to, they would have God with them by his Holy Spirit. They'd not need to return to Jerusalem to get a bit of a top-up. Because they'd have God with them by the Holy Spirit every step of every day. It's a truth that I think is often forgotten, but it needs to be heard loud and clear. Yes, it is very good and important to meet with God's people as we're doing this morning, to worship, to learn, to pray, to encourage one another. You'll never hear me say anything else. But you don't need to come to church to know God with you. Just as God went with his people in the tabernacle, 
so God goes with us by the Holy Spirit. You don't need a model HTC to take with you. You don't need a plastic Jesus on your dashboard. If you have repented of your sins and called on Jesus as your saviour, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you wherever you go. So can I ask you about your week to come? Where are you going to be going? A difficult meeting? A worrying hospital appointment? A lonely house? A fraught home? Wherever you go, you need to know that you can go with God with you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Archbishop Rowan Williams was once asked how he kept going in the midst of his extraordinary workload as Archbishop of Canterbury. He said that if he had a minute to spare, he would breathe in and out and pray quietly, God is here. I found that hugely helpful. Because the great news is by the Holy Spirit is that he is. God is here. Let's get back to religious buildings. The ministry assistants at this church will tell you I get quite animated about buildings. Every year I take them to St. George's Isha, which is one of the first churches built after the English Reformation. And I tell them about the history of the Church of England through that building. It's gripping stuff. But the building is not the message. The message is the man. The message is Jesus Christ. And we've seen today that the tabernacle points forward to him in three ways. It points forward to who he is. God not between the cherubim but in human form. It points forward to what he's done, enabled us to draw close to God through the sacrifice, not of an animal, but his own sacrifice on the cross. And it points forward to what he offers, his permanent presence, not in a portable tent, but in the indwelling Holy Spirit. So can I ask us this morning, do we see that in Jesus and his incarnation, God has dwelt among his people and touched every human life? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second, do we thank God that in Jesus and his death, God has enabled us to come close to him. And will we do that this morning by laying aside the sin, knowing that Jesus has taken it, and coming to him as we are, drawing near through the blood of Jesus Christ? And thirdly, will we embrace what God in Jesus offers, namely the Holy Spirit with us every step of every day, because God is here. Let me pray.